me pray and we'll start. Our Father and our God, we thank you that you've given us this one day in seven to come and uh, praise you, to learn about you, to learn about ourselves, uh, to learn about this world we live in and how we are to live. And uh, we just pray you bless our time in this, this section of our morning that we might learn more about uh, our witness in the world and you'd grant us a great measure of insight and mercy in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. This morning is uh, continuing in our class of our worshiping world. And uh, I'm going to put up this uh, infographic. This is kind of a, there's lots of maps you can get, I found, out there uh, on the interwebs. And uh, this one was the best one, I thought, because the other ones are just so, some were so detailed, almost down to a county level in the, you know, in the United States and you know, provinces and states of other countries that it became a little bit looking like uh, somebody took a shotgun to the map and then threw some paint on it. But this one, I thought, captured kind of a major religions and its focus. You can see on the left-hand side, Christianity in North and South America is the dominant religion. I mean, it doesn't mean there's not other religions. It just means it's the dominant religions. And of course, in, in Christianity in North and South America, there are many variations of Christian religions. It's a very big, broad tent of what we would call basic religion in terms of Christian belief. And the same could be true of Islam in the red, for example. There are many sects, the two most famous, uh, the Shia and the Sunni, don't like each other very much. Uh, and uh, there's other sects as well and different permutations even, even within those, those sects. And the same could be said with uh, uh, Hinduism, of course, and, and Buddhism especially is a, a very broad umbrella, and there's very many different types of, uh, of Buddhist practice that would call themselves Buddhist, but seem very different, sometimes contradictory in their beliefs. But we're gonna talk about Buddhism this morning, hence you'll see a lot of orange in there, that seems to be the color. Um, and it, I, one of these, it's so important, I think, to think about. I was thinking about this morning. My grandparents, my grandfather, my two grandfathers never flew in an airplane. And I have five million miles, three million on American airline alone in my business career. I don't fly so much anymore, but uh, when I was working, I flew a lot around the world. And that's true of many, many people. We have a very different world than it was 50 years ago, even, in terms of movement of people and people groups into different cultures, and it, it, it changes our view of the world because we learn so much more about the world. So our intent in part of this series is to understand um, this global world we live in a little better, and therefore, hopefully, give us some insight as how to witness our Christian faith to these different people groups, wherever we should meet them, whether we should go to their country and uh, actually uh, be in, in, in country and meet people of uh, various religious persuasions, or they should come here to the United States, which they, they are, and they have been for, for many years now. Um, and you know, we can avoid some embarrassing things. I had a minor embarrassing thing happen to me in the, in the mid, many minor embarrassing things happened to me, but one sticks out in particular. Uh, I was at Brigham Young University we were working on an advanced robotics project with the engineering staff of Brigham Young. And it was uh, you know, one of these 
deals where you, well, three days, you know, and five days later we're still working around the clock practically. And I was tired one evening and I, we're in the engineering building, uh, Brigham Young, and uh, I said to our, one of our hosts, is there a coffee machine around here? I could <laughs> get a cup of coffee. And two guys kind of perked up and they looked at me like I had three heads. Like, I, what did I say? <laughs> well, I found out that caffeine was a bad idea. Uh, for them, and uh, no, they did not have any coffee machines, but there was some Diet Coke down the, the way if you wanted some caffeine. Uh, well, they didn't believe that it had it in there. I think it was decaffeinated caffeine at that point. Uh, anyway, uh, that was a little embarrassing. So these are, we had up there that screen before, six major religions, but there's really, really many more. These are just one, um, example of what you can find in terms of the globalization of, uh, of religions in terms of size. Christianity is considered the largest at 2.4 billion in this particular categorization. I don't lay claim to the exactness of these numbers. I'm sure they're not exact, but they're close. Islam at second at 1.9 billion is probably the fastest growing, has been the fastest growing in the last 40, 50 years, uh, maybe 100 years. And uh, atheism listed as a religion in this this uh, compilation. And Hinduism, four, Chinese traditional religion, five, and then Buddhism at six, at around um, 0.38 billion. And the numbers I could find for the US, or North America, I should say, Canada included, uh, put it at about um, 380,000. So it's not very big. And these are practicing Buddhists, members of Buddhist temples and so forth that can be counted. And there's probably, um, like, like a lot of things, there's, there's uh, people that practice, but they don't practice formally or aren't registered with a formal temple or something like that. But all things considered, it's pretty small. And if you look at India, which is there where Hinduism is the dominant religion, there's very few Buddhists. But as we'll find out, that's where actually Buddhism started was in India, and in, in actually part of Nepal, which was part of India at that time and then gravitated eastward and is now a, a largely the dominant religion in, in the Far East, what we call the Far East, uh, Southeast Asia in particular. We got down his back and back is up. There you go. All right, I'm gonna give a brief history of it and, and then we'll move on from there, but um, Starting off, Buddha means awakened one or means enlightened one. It's not a name of a person. It's a title for someone who has achieved something. So in this case, uh, it literally means uh, someone who has become enlightened or awakened. You might say they've been awoken. They're woke. Uh, <laughs> so it kind of fits, doesn't it? <laughs> and, uh, the, the man's actual name was Siddhartha Gautama. He was born of a, in a noble caste, that is a ruling caste, in a, in a section of Nepal, wealthy, a powerful family. Uh, he was being groomed to be a leader, a king, a potentate um, of that area, and um, lived a, a life of, of great luxury and privilege, as it were. Now he was... Uh, 
sheltered, as it, some of the accounts that you'll read about him uh, even go so far to say that his, his father protected him so much from the outer world of suffering that he was surprised to find out that people died or people got sick uh, or there was the suffering. I find that a little hard to believe that he didn't know that till he was older. Uh, but that, that's some writings you'll find, is that he was so naive about uh, the world and so sheltered from it that he didn't know uh, that there was suffering in the world. And he was quite horrified um, about that. And about the age of 29, it was right after his son was born, and he was, he was married, had a son, and that he uh, rejected that life of luxury and decided to move into an ascetic lifestyle, that is, uh, you know, go off and kind of, it's kind of what we would call in, in Christianity being a monk, you know, being a, an ascetic monk who rejects, you know, any kind of comforts at all and, and lives a life of asceticism. And he did that for six years and he found out that wasn't very <laughs> profitable either. So he, he rejected both aspects, whether it was luxury, living in luxury and, and privilege or having nothing and living, he often it was said uh, by legend that he used to sleep on bramble bushes. Um, I guess a bramble bush is probably not comfortable to sleep on, uh, but he did that to try to drive out feelings of comfort so he would be uncomfortable, uh, as if that would give him some understanding uh, of that. And ultimately rejected that and started focusing just on meditation. And, and he then taught on meditation, his particular idea of what meditation would be for the next 45 years to his disciples um, uh, teaching that. And he's trying to achieve a state of nirvana, which is, uh, nirvana could be described as um, a, an extinction or a exhaustion of desire for anything. Basically, you don't care about anything. It, it's just emptiness in that sense. And, and the reason for that is that if you don't desire something, if you aren't attached to something, then if you lose it, it gets sick or dies or whatever or goes away, uh, you're not disappointed. <laughs> you're not sorrowful. And that's the goal. So you basically see all of life as kind of... Um, indiscriminate oneness. Um, and we'll talk, in a couple of weeks, we'll talk more about oneness and twoists and monism, which um, was mentioned last week with uh, Scott's presentation, uh, a little bit more about that and what it means and how it relates to Christianity. Um, so they spent the next uh, part of his life, he lived till a year, uh, until he was 80 years old, as legend has it, um, to, uh, to, to achieve the same nirvana state that he had achieved. Interestingly enough, although he lived around uh, mid-500s uh, uh, BC, uh, 500 years or so before Christ, um, there wasn't a biography of, of the Buddha until around 100 AD. So, Four or five hundred years after he died was the first written biography with his teachings and sayings. Um, so it's not like the Bible where you can go to one kind of codified 
system of, of history and teaching that um, explains all the way through uh, about the life of all the patriarchs and then moving to Jesus and then how the, the whole thing is about pointing to Jesus. It isn't a kind of um, coherence that Christian scriptures have. Uh, in some ways, it's kind of incoherent. Uh, it's, and it's not, uh, it's, it's similar in some respects to Islam. If, you're, if you've read the Quran, uh, then you'll see it, it looks a lot like Proverbs. It looks a lot like sayings of, you know, do these good things, don't do these bad things type of thing. And it's similar with that with the, the Buddhist writings that are attributed to him, at least, uh, in terms of how to live and, and, and live rightly. So what did he teach? And we'll just talk about this very briefly. Um, it starts with the, uh, the four noble tr uh, truths. Um, to live is to suffer. He recognized that suffering was, and this is kind of a, a way to explain suffering and how to deal with it, um, that you cannot live in this world without suffering in this world. I think everybody, we could all agree with that. I mean. We understand that. Uh, Jesus even tells us that, that in this life you shall have trials and tribulations. And every life that we know, our own included, has trials and tribulations. Secondly, uh, the cause of suffering is self-centeredness and attachment. Now, what this means, as I was mentioning earlier, is that if we're if we're focused on ourselves and what we need and want, we're grasping at things and going for things, that uh, this self-centered idea of going for things um, becomes, in, in a sense, it's kind of true, it becomes almost a, a godlike thing where it becomes an ultimate thing. It becomes too important. And in that sense, I would kind of agree with him. You know, if we, I would like a new, I'd like any BMW, not just a new one. But uh, 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 my budget tells me I can't have one. So is that suffering? Well, no, not really. <laughs> so, you know, if I'm looking at it rightly, God provides, you know, plenty of things for me. I don't need to be concerned about that, a particular uh, BMW. Uh, so getting rid of certain self-centered desire is probably a good thing. <laughs> For us to do. If we're attached to things, uh, whether it's BMWs or whether it's children or uh, prestige or uh, uh, academic achievements or whatever, then if we lose those things, then that's suffering. Um, so all these things cause suffering. So then the, the solution is to eliminate that. It's to eliminate the desire and attachment. And if we do that, perfectly, then we achieve a state of nirvana. Um, we're enlightened at that point. Now, you might say, okay, well, what's the way to this nirvana? And his teaching on that was the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path um, is really a, you could sum it up as to the, what he would describe as the law and the discipline. Um, and these are not necessarily bad things. It includes wisdom, moral discipline, and mental discipline. 
And there's a lot of things we can get behind for that, you know? These are not bad things. Um, wisdom is a good thing. Um, you know, moral discipline and mental discipline are good things. Um, and it, within this context, then, there's uh, right understanding and right motivation, right understanding, right views of the world, how the world works, and in particular, how suffering and desire and attachment uh, affect us, and how we can overcome them. That's a right view. And uh, a right motivation, doing things out of a, a good intention, whether it's for ourselves or for others, um, is, a, is a healthy thing. Under moral discipline, there's right speech, right action, and right livelihood. Again, you know, speaking well, uh, um, acting well, and uh, doing something that's, uh, that's useful in terms of work uh, and helps other people is a good thing. And I think we can all get behind that. A mental discipline is right effort, right mindfulness, and right meditation. In this case, it has a more of a inward focus in the sense of uh, I make the efforts I need to make. I do the things I'm supposed to do uh, that duty requires. Uh, right mindfulness is keeping track of my thinking and how I'm processing things and looking at the world. And in other words, watching my thoughts. Um, and then right meditation is meditating on the uh, Buddhist teachings in terms of all of these things of right behavior, right wisdom, right uh, discipline, and, and moral and mental. Um, as I mentioned, there's no central authority of holy writings. I did um, pick up this book about 30 years ago. I went looking at it this week. And um, we won't have time to get into it. But this book is made up actually of it was two academics who are Buddhists who wrote it. Uh, one's a German. The other one's not sure what it is. I think he's American. Um, they don't have any author information in it. Um, but it's basically a compilation of the two main sections. The, the first writer, Paul Karras, tried to assemble, and they give you the, the historical things that are given for Buddhism uh, in terms of where they got their writings. But his attempt was to write a kind of New Testament. And it's called the Gospel of the Buddha. Um, and the second one is more uh, focused on the Eightfold Path. What does that mean? How do you practice it? And so forth like that. And that's called the word of the Buddha. So at this point, um, I'd like to invite up a guest. There's the little eightfold path thing. I want to invite up uh, Sook Cadwell. Sook and Al Cadwell have been at Redeemer for 25, almost 26 years. So they're one of the early adopters of Edemer. Uh, and um, Sook has a very interesting story. Uh, she came from a, 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 a Buddhist uh, environment, religious environment, grew up in Southeast Asia. She's going to talk a little bit about that and about her experience and how she came to faith in Christ. And then we'll have probably some conversation, as we've done before, about some recommendations about how to speak to people uh, of different faiths, in particular, in this case, Buddhism, but it really applies to, to anyone else of a, of a different faith. So I'll let you uh, take this away. And I, have, I actually have two maps here. I've got the greater map. You can see Malaysia. And you grew up near Kuala Lumpur, uh, right? 
Yes. Uh, Port City? Yes. Along here? I don't know if it's, there's a second map. Uh, Selangor? Yeah, Selangor. Okay. Yeah, okay. I had suggested to Mike that we that I teach him a song in Malaysian, but he didn't want to do that. So, uh, so you're going to have you're stuck with hearing me speak uh, this morning. Um, Selamat pagi, kawan-kawan. Nama saya Yala Suk Cadwell. So I just said good morning, my friends. My name is Suk Cadwell in Malaysian. So I grew up in West Malaysia, uh, which is a peninsula sandwiched between Thailand and Singapore, um, and it's right on the equator. Uh, my family and I immigrated to the United States in 1978 when I was 15. Now, you're doing the math and you now know my age. 39. <laughs> well, thanks, Mike. Yeah, I'm really good at math. Now, Ma <laughs> Malaysia, like many of the countries in Southeast Asia, experienced uh, Western and Japanese occupation. The Straits of Malacca uh, that you can see on the map was one of the most traveled and sought after routes because it was the shortest route, sea route between India and China. Malaysia is a country that has many resources such as tin, oil, rubber, sugar, rice, coffee, tea, just to name a few. So you can imagine the kind of wealth that could be accumulated from that. And so during the British occupation, uh, they brought a lot of laborers from India and China to work in these, um, in these resources. And along with that, they brought their own beliefs and their religion, and they added that to the pagan uh, religion that was among the natives. So my childhood was surrounded by uh, friends of all these different religions. Now, I grew up telling people that I was a Buddhist because that's how my parents would describe themselves. Um, but it was not until college that I actually realized that I was really not practicing Buddhism. Mike gave you a short, short synopsis of what Buddhism is. Um, it, there's Northern Buddhism, there's Southern Buddhism, and there's a lot of differences in all of that. Um, you see, I had to take a religion class in college to learn about a faith that I profess all my life at the time. Because I learned that people wanted to learn about world religions, but when you said you were a Christian, nobody wanted to talk about it. And so I was kind of curious about what I believe, and so I took a class. And I realized that um, I really wasn't practicing Buddhism. Because my parents, um, really couldn't teach me anything. There was really no writings. There were no texts. There were no teachers. There were no places you could go to to learn about what you were believing. And so I grew up with the rituals that my parents um, performed on a daily basis. So what did these rituals look like? Well, in our house, we had a small altar. And on the altar, we had a little statue of a golden Buddha, as you can see from the picture that Mike had earlier of a statue of Buddha. That's what we had on our altar. And every day, every morning, my mom would put fresh fruit and flowers on the altar. And she would burn incense, she would pray. And that's what we did every day. And once a month, we would go to the temple. Um, oh, I meant to say, it, was just, it wasn't just flowers and fruit that was on the altar. We sometimes offered meats, cooked meats. I do not know why, but we did. 
And on certain days of the month, we would go to the temple uh, that was nearby, and we would bring money to offer to the monks to pray for us. And at the temples, uh, they're usually just these huge buildings with multiple and very large statues. And not just one, but many. So there were different gods, so to speak. And you had to offer um, a payment for each one of the, the statues. So you never know, you know what you're really paying it to, but you were paying because it's part of what you do. Um, and during these visits, you could ask for answers to specific prayers. Uh, for example, let's say your son or daughter is getting married and you want to know what is a very auspicious date for them. And so you pay and you ask the priest to pray for you. And so as he's chanting, he's shaking a container with sticks that look like chopsticks, but they have numbers on it. And he's shaking it and a stick will fall out. And so he takes the stick and he goes and consults this book with numbers. And he says, January 15, that's your auspicious day. My grandmother um, asked a question herself about when she was going to die. And so the monk gave her a date. The date came and went, and she was still alive at the time. So obviously that didn't work. But, uh, but you know, people didn't know. They, they, knew, they thought that that was the way to do it. And so um, that's what you did. Now, in my grandparents' home, they had a much different altar a much bigger one. And in addition to the statue, they had a picture of an ancestor, and I don't know who the ancestor was, but in my, grandmother, in my maternal and my grand, paternal grandparents, they both had a picture of, a, of an ancestor that we worshiped on the altar. And same thing, we would offer incense, fruit, vegetables, and meats. Now, in, for my maternal grandmother, she had an additional altar in her kitchen. And she said that this was for her protection. I didn't really know from what at the time. But she was very superstitious. She was very afraid of, she was very, a big proponent of uh, karma uh, and reincarnation. I know that uh, Scott had mentioned what karma and reincarnation is. So it's the repetitive, you know, coming back as something, hopefully, in a better life. Now, although she believed in reincarnation, she was not a vegetarian. So I really didn't quite understand why. She didn't kill, and, you know, certain things, but she believed in it. So, um, so but then one time a month, she would abstain from eating meats. So I guess that, you know, balances it out. I'm not sure. Um, she was fearful of the spirit world, um, and she was always very afraid of making them angry. And she instilled this fear in all of her grandchildren. We were always afraid of the, of the afterworld. And um, there, another huge influence came from Confucius. Um, Confucius was a very influential philosopher. He believed in ancestor worship, filial piety, which is a devotion to family, submission to parental authority. Because to him, family is the most important group. You may have heard his golden rule, do not do to others what you would not want others to do to you. That was one of his golden rule. And over the years, uh, we practiced one of his um, philosophy, uh, and that was to 
um, worship our ancestors. So every year, we would gather, my grandparents, my parents, all the grandchildren, we would um, gather at the gravesite of an ancestor. We would clean it up, and we would offer different gifts to the ancestor. Gifts of um, made in paper, gifts such as a car, a house, uh, paper, uh, clothes, but everything made of paper, uh, money, and we would burn this uh, gift to the ancestor so they would have a good life. And after we cleaned up and burned all these gifts, we would sit around the graveside and have a picnic. This was another way that we were worshiping the ancestors. And lastly, I, I also experienced firsthand an encounter with a village shaman. So this would be the native pagan religion that was in Malaysia. Um, after a failed attempt uh, to remedy an infected eye that I had, my mom decided to seek out a shaman. Uh, she paid the amount that she had to to get an answer. Uh, she bought a live chicken. And um, after telling the interpreter what she was there for, uh, this shaman went into a trance. It was really scary because he started to drool his eyes rolled into the back of his head. And, um, and then at this point, the chicken has been cut or killed and blood is sprinkled all over the altar and him. And he gives us a, a garbled answer that the interpreter tells us what it is. And apparently there's a spirit in my house, in our house, and we needed to appease him so that my eye infection would go away. But this was part of the beliefs that I grew up with. So it wasn't just Buddhism, even though that's what I thought. So we practice a lot of religions and philosophies. So why would my family and their families before them sort out all these practices? All of them never offered any assurance. There was no hope. And certainly there was not a God who offered any kind of relationship with their people. So fast forward to college. Um, God used a, a boyfriend that I was dating at the time to ask me the dreaded evangelism explosion question. Do you know what that is? Yeah. What, where, where do you think you'll go if you were to die today? Uh, we had been dating for a few years, and, and he had never shared his faith. He had never been to church. He never talked about Jesus, none of that. But God chose him to ask me the question. <laughs> Let the record show that that was... Uh, that was not Al. <laughs> um, I was so angry with this question because we'd been dating. I'm a good person. I've never done anything bad. Of course I'm not going to go to hell. I, I was very sure of that. And I couldn't, have, I couldn't believe he had the audacity to ask me that question. And yes, we did break up. <laughs> so, um, fast forward again, I, after college, I worked with an environmental engineering firm, and God brought Cindy Arnold into my life. She's going to cry now. Yeah. This is her good friend. I told Mike I was going to cry at this point. At the time, um, in my eyes, I was better than Cindy. She did smoke. She did drink, none of the things I did, 
because I'm good. I don't do those things. But Cindy was one of the most joyful people to be around. She loved life, but most of all, she loved Jesus. She talked about her faith in a very loving, gentle way. She invited me to church. She asked questions about, about me. So I started attending church with her because I was kind of curious at this point. Surely I didn't want to go to hell, right? And so um, we were friends for many years. And after a few years, um, God used her again to ask me the same EE question. But this time, she didn't stop at the fact asking me of where I was going to go. She asked me, do you know, Suk, you have nothing to lose but everything to gain? And Jesus wants a personal relationship with you. Oh, my. There are no religions that offers that. So I, I think back, and at the time I was wondering why I hesitated to accept this free gift. And I realized that I was afraid to tell my parents that I had accepted Christ. Because I would not, no longer be submitting to their authority or following any of their beliefs anymore. I was no longer under the parental submission. So when I finally told them, it was a year after I became a believer, my dad looked at my mom and he said, she's joined a cult and it will be short-lived. Well, I experienced baptism in this huge, large lake in Florida at the age of 29. And it occurred to me when I was putting this together that this year marked 29 years. Hmm. Yes, you're now doing the math and yes, you know my age. <laughs> <laughs> Now, my pastor suggested that I write my testimony down um, when, before my baptism. He said, because you don't ever want to forget your, what God has done in your life. And I encourage every one of you to write your story down. Because all our stories are part of God's bigger story. There are no dull or boring conversions. If you have accepted Jesus, your life is transformed from your old self to your new self. And there's nothing you could have done or added to receive this gift. So I encourage you to think about that. Now, what do I know? What I do know is that Jesus is like no other, because I've lived the other life. He gave up his divinity to be human, to experience all our trials and pains, and yet not sin so that he could be the perfect sacrifice for us. I know that although this journey called life may be rough and bumpy, and sometimes downright hard at times. But our destination is set. And he's waiting for us. It's kind of like reading a book and knowing the end. I mean, I know, I know you guys never read the end of a book to know the end. But this is a book we know the end to. And it's a glorious one. And one of the things that really blew my mind when Cindy shared about Jesus was that he wanted a personal relationship with me. I'm telling you, there's no religion out there that offers that. How can it be? This is a God. Mike told us about how to attain nirvana, enlightenment. Knowing us as sinners, we can never achieve that. 
We can never. We can never be perfect. We can never, ever be enlightened. But yet, people strive for that. Why? And the other thing she told me about was that he listens to our prayers. Now, he doesn't always answer the way we want it to be, but he listens to our prayers. He has an advocate that he's given us that prays on our behalf. Remember what I told you in all those things that I grew up with. We prayed every single day. I lived next to a mosque when I was growing up. We heard the call to prayer several times a day. These people are devout prayers, prayer, you know, prayer warriors. But they never know if Allah is listening to them. My neighbor, my best friend, was Hindu. She had an altar in her house. They prayed every single day. But they never know if God was listening to them if he was angry with them. But our God is not like that. If we were to wait for a God to, for us to be right so that God could listen to us, we would never achieve that. So our prayers, a conversation with God, it is a privilege. Now, I'm not here today to convince you about Jesus because he doesn't need me to do that. But I am here to tell you that my life is no longer the same. I don't want to return to that. Why would I? It's futile. You could do all those things and never know. My grandmother used to be afraid to, to step on an ant, and that is a true story, because it could be somebody she knew from before. Imagine that. Imagine your life being fearful of all the things that you would do, because there's nothing you can control, but yet you try to control it. So. I am here to tell you that my life is no longer the same. I have hope. I have assurance. I have a God who loves me beyond my imagination. And he has invited me to the table. And he has forgiven me. The other thing, too, Mike and I were talking about just believers in general. We have a community of believers all over the world. When you're a believer, you can be a friend. You can be a sister and brother to somebody all over the world. I did not grow up with that kind of community. I didn't have that kind of support when I was growing up. You were an individual. Even if you were praying in a temple, you were not united in any way. You were you, you were working for your own salvation, so to speak. It's very lonely. As a community of believers, we are not alone. We have each other. So. There are so many gifts that God has given us as his heirs and his children. Um, and we should be joyful people. Life is not easy, but we have the answer at the very end. We know the story. We know how it ends, and we can share that. Amen. Yep. Well, that's powerful stuff. And uh, we could go on for longer, but we only have a few minutes left. Any questions or comments that anyone would like to uh, ask at this point? Yes? The question was that after a period of time and your parents asked, you talked about you being in a cult, mm. what was your response? Yeah. Um, they never talked to me about my faith. Um, and I was actually for a long time afraid to share with them about my change. But they did see the life that I um, lived was very different. 
um, and uh, to me personally more joyful and more freeing. Um, and I didn't share my testimony with my dad until a year and a half before he passed. It, it was really the first time that I could sit down and tell him. And he was actually sadly in the hospital when, when I shared. Um, and I asked him if he had ever thought about the afterlife. I said, what, what do you think that, that after death, what would happen? And my dad said, I've never thought about it. But I think that's true of most people. They don't think about it. And because they want to think that they're going to heaven, and they want to think that they've been good. Um, so it was the first time I shared with my dad um, my testimony. Now, I have shared the gospel with my family now. Um, nobody's a believer in my family. Um, and my sister and I lived at this, uh, together at the time I became a believer, and it took me three months to share with her. And when I did tell her, um, she asked me the same question. She said, you know, you know I'm good. Uh, do you think I will go to heaven? And I said, I believe the Bible. And the answer would be no. And we didn't speak for a few months. <laughs> but you know what? We should not be afraid to not share because of that. Because they will go to hell. So. Yeah. All right, we're at our time pretty much. Uh, let me uh, offer a prayer and we'll end right now. Our Father, our God, we do thank you for Sook's story. Thank you for redeeming her. Um, and we're thankful that you're, she's willing to share with us her experience. Um, it's so important for us to hear and, uh, and for us to plot our life and our witness to the world of how we might show what our faith is like and what faith in Jesus really means. Um, so help us, Lord God, to be the same, to uh, be bold, uh, speak the truth in love, and, um, and knowing that you will do with, with our witness what you will do. And mm -hmm. it's not on us, but you take full responsibility. Yes. And we're thankful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.